All right, welcome everybody. Um, I don't know whether this is some kind of a record for um, new people and or visitors and or non-members of All Saints coming to Bible study, but it is, there's so many, I'm not even going to try and name you all. It is wonderful to have um, you guys with us. Um, you should all have this um, handout, which is entitled Two Challenges to Post-Millennial Eschatology. Uh, exploring eschatology number 12, which places me in an interesting and slightly awkward position of realizing there's a bunch of people here who haven't had sessions one through 11, and we have a total of an hour and a quarter to get through all this. And I I think I might have put twice as much in this as can really fit in one session anyway. So we will um, do some kind of rip-roaring tour through the first 11 sessions uh, and see where we get to with that. Um, Those of you who are at home, um, you should find... In your email inboxes, something a little bit like this, in PDF form. It will be very helpful to me if I know that you've got that at least more or less visible because it has a non-rapture chart in it. Uh, sorry. Uh, I, I drew a rapture chart last week for those of you who... I, the first time I've ever drawn a rapture chart in any kind of teaching context in a church. How about that? I did it from memory with no help. And this week I thought I'd do it again, but this week without the rapture. So um, you'll find that... I think, hopefully, that'll be helpful. Um, Come and grab a seat, um, wonderful clankhorns, and we'll just get started in uh, 30 seconds. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to pray, and then um, we have some work to do, so we should get started. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we are thankful to you for one another, for the privilege of being your children, for the blessing of being surrounded by brothers and sisters within your family, and for the glorious privilege of being those who live in the climax of the ages, that period of time during which Christ reigns. As the recipients of his word, we pray you'd help us to be insightful in regard to it and faithful in living it out. And particularly today, we pray you'd help us to consider with thoughtfulness uh, some things which might be somewhat surprising to us, uh, but which at least need to be addressed if we're to sketch anything like a complete picture of what you're at work doing in human history, and therefore what you're doing in the life of our church or churches, since we hail from many this evening, and what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for uh, this opportunity, therefore, and ask you to bless this time to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, okay, so uh, hold tight. I'm going to try and sketch as quickly as I can what we've been doing here for the last 11 sessions in this series. Uh, This is an introduction to eschatology. Eschatology, rightly understood, is the Christian doctrine of history because it answers the question, what is God doing between the beginning of all things in the creation of the world and the time we're in now and off into the future. It therefore includes what we normally think of as eschatology from the Greek eschatos, meaning last, that is the last things, things which are still in our future. But in order to have a proper grasp of the things which lie in our future, we must understand the unfolding of history as it's depicted in the whole of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 onwards. And so what, that's what we've done. In fact, we began outside of time and before time itself, (coughs) thinking about the character of God. And then we worked our way through a systematic 
exposition of what has come to be known as covenant theology, which is to say an exploration of the way in which God's covenant or covenants with people have developed since Adam up to the present. Covenant is just a relationship. It's a particular kind of relationship. It's a relationship that's well-defined, with well-defined expectations on both sides, with promises of blessing and warnings of sanctions to be enacted if the, the terms of the covenant or relationship are broken. We are in covenant with God, which is to say that God has a committed himself to act in certain ways towards us, to provide for us every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have uh, obligations as covenant partners with him. Uh, we have been marked, or those of us who have been marked, which I take it will be most, if not all, all of us, with the covenant sign of baptism. And with the, uh, we're fed at the covenant meal, the covenant table, the Lord's Supper, Uh, We make promises explicitly and implicitly at those times and at many other times to be faithful to our covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we've been doing has been, as we've been exploring the unfolding of God's relationship with humanity leading up to where we are now, what you start to see is at every stage of history, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Christ, new elements get added to the picture of what God's relationship with his people involves. Right from the beginning, it becomes clear that God's aim is that men and women should rule the world under his authority, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Later elements that are added include the idea that God promises to bless not just his people, but his people's children. That becomes particularly clear in the days of Abraham. Before that, in the days of Noah, that same theme becomes clear. It also becomes clear that God has got plans for dealing with the sinfulness of people. The the initiation of capital punishment, for example, in Genesis 9 is there to preserve human life, preserve us from each other and from ourselves. Um, Later in the days of Moses, it becomes clear that the way in which God is going to reach the whole world is going to involve his special people, his covenant people, living such faithful lives that the rest of the world sees their faithfulness and are drawn to him through their witness. And that becomes clear, for example, in Deuteronomy 4. And so what you see as this uh, history unfolds, many, many, many different elements get added to the picture of what our relationship with God is like now. One more example. In the days of David, you, you notice a transition takes place. Whereas before the monarchy and King David, everything hinges, so to speak, on the faithfulness of the people as a whole. Israel is God's son. And if Israel is unfaithful, like they were in the days of the judges, then Israel as a community will be uh, brought under God's judgment. But from the days of the monarchy onwards, it becomes clear that, of course, the people's faithfulness is still highly significant, but everything really hinges on the, the faithfulness of the king. The king becomes the one through whom God's relationship with the whole people is focused. So if you've got a faithful king, everything's going to be fine. If you've got an unfaithful king, it's going to be a catastrophe, which, of course, is what happened in most of First and Second Kings. And so you get to the end of the Old Testament, quote-unquote, because no such thing as the Old Testament, but the older part of the scriptures before Christ came, we can call it that. Um, you get to that point, and, 
and you're expecting the unfolding of a relationship that will contain within it all of the blessings and all of the features that existed before. And you're just hoping that the Lord will come up with some way of dealing with the sin of his people and finding a faithful king to rule over them. And so that's what Christ is. It's who Christ is. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So what we're, we are now living in the uh, era during which Christ is reigning over his people and as the mediator between God and us. We're reconciled with him. Now, what do we expect that kingdom, that community to do over time? Well, Genesis 1, we expected the world to be filled with men and women who love the living God and are seeking to honor him. In the days of Abraham, he is told, all nations on earth will be filled, will be blessed through you. In the days of Moses, the expectation is created that if the people were faithful, if only the people could be faithful, all the nations of the world would come streaming to Mount Zion to worship the Lord. And of course, in the days of the monarchy, that's made extremely clear in the prophecy of Isaiah and in the book of Psalms, that if only we could have a faithful king, all the nations of the world would beat their swords into plowshares and stream to Mount Zion to worship the king, and that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. You with me? Now, what that does is it creates a future expectation. So now we get to what you all think this is all about when you start thinking about eschatology, which is the future. Scripture, when you take into account the development of that whole story, and I'll come to your chart in front of you, you see the timeline, you're glancing down at it and thinking, oh, I see where you're going with this. When you take into account that whole story, it becomes obvious, obvious, that the kingdom of this great anointed king will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And it will be like a rock that becomes a mountain that fills a whole earth. And it will be like the leaven that's mixed, mixed in with the dough, which permeates through the whole dough until it's all leavened. And it will be like a, the tiniest of all seeds, which when it's sown in the ground becomes the largest of all the trees in the garden so that all the birds of the air, which are like the Gentile nations of the world, can come and nest in its branches, which is exactly what Jesus says it's going to be like when he's explaining what his kingdom is going to be like. In other words, what we're expecting is that the church will continue to grow during this period in which Christ reigns over us from heaven until it's not necessarily the case that every last human being is a Christian, but certainly the case that it can be said, well, this world has been discipled for and by the king. And that is post-millennial eschatology. Post-millennial because... It makes the claim that Christ will return only after, that is, post, the so-called millennium, which is mentioned once in the Bible in Revelation 20. It's a long period of time, figurative thousand years, not a literal thousand years, during which Christ reigns, Satan is bound, can't deceive the nations any longer, and so the kingdom can grow as it is doing in the age in which we now live. So post-millennial eschatology has this decisive feature. Before Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. The world will be, as John Owen said, subdued by the gospel. Men and women in vast numbers will have come to Christ in faith and they will have started to shape the institutions and the cultures and the societies of which they're a part. So it may be that America is not 100% Christian. It might be 93.7% Christian, but 
it will be recognisably shaped by the gospel and then the end will come, 1 Corinthians 15, after that period of time. Okay, so that's post-millennial eschatology. Last week, we looked at one alternative and very widely held eschatological view called dispensationalism, which we're not going to cover over again. But one of the things we want to do is to try and understand how our brothers and sisters in Christ who might not share this picture of Christian doctrine of history, how they view things. And we spent a lot of time um, to try and unpack where dispensationalism came from and what are some of its um, driving principles and where it, where it goes wrong. And, and so last week I drew a rapture chart for you. Hands up if you've ever seen a rapture chart before I showed it to you last week. In, oh, come on, I don't believe you, yeah. Yeah, it was, mine was, I don't know, anyway. But then I promised you at the end of last week another non-rapture chart. And here, so therefore, to summarise everything I've just said, here is, it's so much simpler, <laughs> right? It's simply a graphical depiction of what history is actually like. Let me talk you through it. If you're watching online, this is the, the little drawing that I somehow managed to persuade Microsoft Word to generate this afternoon. Um, it's a timeline of human history from Adam at the beginning through Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, the growth of the kingdom up to the general resurrection and future glory, the resurrection of the dead and our life in a renewed heavens and earth. It's not to scale, right? But what it does do is highlight a few things. So first... Notice that everything that goes before Jesus is, in a sense, leading up to him. There is development, but continuity. And in Christ, all of the types and shadows and promises and anticipations that are found earlier in Scripture are brought to their fulfillment. Specifically in his life, but his death and his resurrection are the decisive moments. And you see them depicted with a little blue cross, the cross of Christ, and a little upwards arrow, resurrection. Now, rolled into his resurrection is his ascension and his enthronement. And so now, as of the first great ascension day, depicted in um, the end of the Gospel of Luke and in Acts chapter 1, since that day, Christ has been reigning as king, hence the little crown that says Jesus in it. Christ is the king over his kingdom, and that kingdom is growing during this period which is labelled kingdom growth, dot, 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 dot. That's the period in which we are now living. That's the period in which we are now living. And that's why there's a little picture of a church there. Right? That's best I could do. Couldn't find all saints in um, icon form. But that's little. Now, I don't know whether that church should be right near the beginning of that kingdom growth period or right near the end of that kingdom growth period. Because nobody knows when the final downwards arrow which is Jesus returning bodily from where he is now enthroned in heaven to earth to raise the dead at the general resurrection nobody knows when that's going to be but we can say with some confidence that it's not going to be yet because the world has to be discipled first you with me but that's the other point on the arrow so resurrection ascension enthronement of Jesus Jesus is reigning as king that blue arrow going from left to right at some point don't know when in the future Jesus will return in glory, the dead will be raised, and the eternal state will begin in glory. You with me? That's the only rapture chart you'll need, and there's no rapture on it. You with me? Now, apart from 
among our dispensationalist friends, who we've already engaged with and, and talked about last week, there are other Christian brothers and sisters who will take exception to this. And specifically, they would take exception to the claim that the kingdom will continue to grow during this kingdom growth period that I've labeled until, I don't know what counts as a large majority, but at least until it can be said that the earth and all that is in it has been shaped decisively by the gospel. There are many Christians, including many Christians in England where I come from, most of my contemporaries, who would say, no, no, we're not dispensationalists, but we don't think that the kingdom is going to keep growing during this period. It might have ups and downs, but we have no reason to think that the church will continue to increase in size to the point where it can decisively shape the culture and the political life of the world that we find ourselves in. And two of their best arguments for their position, um, these people often will be called amillennialists or amillennialists, so they don't think that this millennium has the kind of structure that I would claim it has, that the Bible teaches it has. Stop it. Um, my, my, my friend Andrew Satch, who's one of the smartest people I've ever met, and I, I studied with him and worked with him for many years, and I, he's a pastor of a church in London and uh, teaches on a theology course in London. He would say, yeah, but Steve, isn't it true that the New Testament launches a double-barreled challenge at your post-millennial eschatology? Because he would say it like that, because he'd find an elegant and memorable way of highlighting the double-barreled challenge. He would say, isn't it true that the New Testament teaches that few will be saved, Steve? And isn't it true also, secondly, that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is coming soon? Now, if he's right, if it's true that few will be saved, then the post-millennial eschatology that we've sketched can't be right, can it? Because it would mean that, well, maybe the kingdom's growing now, but it's going to decline, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And if it's true that Jesus is coming soon, then it's also the case that our post-millennial eschatology can't be right, because if Jesus is coming soon, he could be here tomorrow, and the world ain't discipled yet. You with me? So these two New Testament text challenges need to be answered. Now, there's a point of principle here, which is that when you're, when you're making a case for a, a theological, or in fact, any other position that you believe in, it is never enough simply to set out the positive reasons for believing your position. It's also necessary to address good counter-arguments, to, to sweep them under the carpet as though there are no good reasons for believing otherwise is, is almost a form of intellectual dishonesty if it's done deliberately. It's certainly weakness because it's like pretending that those texts aren't in the New Testament. The, the Lord God inspired texts that say few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. The Lord God inspired a text that says Luke 13, 23 to 24, when Jesus ask, is asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus appears to give a positive answer in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many will seek to enter and won't be able to. So as a point of Christian integrity, 
both to our brothers and sisters in Christ and also to the scriptures and to the living God. We've got to try and wrestle with these texts too and try and understand what they mean. Notice we are not answering those texts. Right? These are not anti-post-mill texts that we've got to answer. There are no anti-post-mill texts in the Bible. There is not a single anti-post-mill text in the Bible. But there are certainly texts that seem to be, which is right. We don't answer them. Don't, don't answer the word of God. Listen to the word of God and then try and understand what it means. And so today I'm going to drag you through the hard yards of looking deeply at these texts and trying to understand what they mean. All the coming soon texts, which we'll look at over the page. And first, the few will be saved texts. I've got a couple of examples. Now, just parenthetically, I'll pause for questions in a second. This has potential to do as a huge amount of good because what happens is we look closely at these texts and try and really wrestle with them and understand them. And we discover things that, oh my goodness, I hadn't realized that. And so maybe we hadn't been making a mistake by being post-mill, but maybe we've been making other mistakes. My friend Andrew Satch, I think he's, oh goodness, am I going to say this? I think he's mistaken in his eschatology. At least he was last time I spoke to him. I'm meeting with him on Zoom in a few weeks' time. I'll ask him again. But the text that he wants to call to our attention will, if we interpret them rightly, highlight other features of the scriptures which we might have completely overlooked which will do us a huge amount of good if we can wrestle with them it's like one of those great conversations where you don't come away like and you agree but you do come away and you've been really helped you ever had that experience that's what happens if you take seriously what your christian brothers and sisters say even when you're going to end up disagreeing with them so let me pause and we're going to jump in in one second and try and tackle my friend's two challenges let me pause for a second any, anybody got any questions at this point or any, any comments you want to make? Anything that's not clear from what I've said so far? You sure? Anybody at home? All right, so let's jump in. Let's tackle the few will be saved challenge. You ready? Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. Oops, lazy. I've got my Matthew notes there. Let's get rid of them. That's it. In Matthew chapter 22, from verse 1, Jesus spoke in parables, and he tells uh, a parable about a wedding feast. And you know the parable, um, uh, uh, he invites all these people and um, they don't want to come and, uh, and actually some of them are really violent and abusive and in verse 6 they actually attack the messengers who invite them. Um, and so the, the king who is giving the feast says, well, okay, we're going to go find some people who do want to come, go out to the highways and byways and find people. And then he finds one guy who's got no wedding garment and, and, he, and he says, well, you can't stay, get out. And he throws him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he says, for, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so uh, non-post-mill friends say, look, Here's a parable about the kingdom. It's like a wedding feast. 
And Jesus specifically says, look, he invites lots of people and they don't want to come. He finally gets some people in here, but he finds one guy who doesn't belong and has to throw him out. And at the end of the parable, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. What are you going to do? Post mill? Can you see the challenge we've got to deal with? And so what what we're going to do is painful, painstaking, slow down, look carefully and discover that actually this text teaches exactly the opposite of what my friend Andrew Satch thinks. I've just got to stop mentioning Satchi. Let's just zoom out and take a look at what um, is going on in um, in this passage. Just turn back a page to Matthew 21, verse 1. And let's notice what's happening here in this portion of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 21, verse 1. Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching, and we're going to come to the content of some of his teaching in a minute when we look at the section in Luke 13. So I'm going to pause on that. I'm going to tell you about all the, the people he's been engaging with in his teaching at this point. But Matthew 21, verse 1. They drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and he sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them. And so he sent them away at once. And this is the beginning of the so-called triumphal entry narrative. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a, the colt of a donkey. Now, just you've got to pause to realize how absolutely ridiculous this would have looked. A donkey is about this high at the shoulder. So riding it, you'd be sitting like this. The colt of a donkey is like that. Okay, so Jesus is riding into Jerusalem like this. Like, literally, he's he's sitting with eye level with Cora Douglas. Why on earth would you do that? It's like, what a ridiculous way to travel. A full-grown man doesn't ride in a baby donkey. What are you talking about? Ah, yes, you do. Because verse 4, why did this this happen? This very strange and significant mode of transport took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, quote, Say to the daughter of Dion, come on. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Which is a quote from where? It's, it's got an allusion to Isaiah 62. Well done. And it, but it's actually, yeah, Mr. Barnes, Zechariah, chapter and verse. Easy to remember, 9 verse 9. So when you come across a quotation in Matthew's Gospel from the Old Testament and it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then there's a big long quotation, what do we all not do? The answer is we don't ignore it. What are we supposed to do with quotations from the Old Testament anywhere in the New Testament? You may answer. Who said look it up? Yes, sir. We look it up. So we go back to Zechariah 9 verse 9. Come back with me. Let's have a look and see what it says. Why on earth would... Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, be such a big deal. So you turn back and hope nobody notices that you're not quite sure where Zechariah is. Um, 
it's really near the end of the Old Testament. Okay, so go backwards from Matthew. Malachi, Zechariah is the next one, okay? And it's only got 14 chapters in, so it's easy to find. What, why would Jesus want to do something that calls attention to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9? The answer is because of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. Look with me at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Which, of course, that's what the people did as Jesus entered triumphantly. They were celebrating. Way! And we'll look at the quotation of what they said in a minute. Behold, your king is coming to you. Oh, that's good, because that means that he's the fulfillment of the Davidic kingly promises of the one who will rule over um, Israel and all the nations. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey... But Zechariah goes on, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. So that's a picture of the Lord bringing peace to Ephraim and Jerusalem. Ephraim is the the name that came to be applied to the northern region of Israel under the older covenant periods, the 10 tribes that went north, basically, and Jerusalem. So there's no longer going to be any lack of peace among my people. He, who's he? Well, it's the king who's coming in, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, just let that sink in for a second. Jesus chooses the most undignified mode of transport conceivable to draw attention to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew notes it and points it out for us. This happened to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And the reason he does so is because he knows exactly what's happening next. It's a prophecy of a king who will enter Jerusalem and bring peace to Jerusalem. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There's a king who will rule not just Israel and Jerusalem, but every nation under heaven. It's actually a quote from Psalm 72. You recognize that from a few weeks ago. If you were here then, it's the Psalm of Solomon. And, of course, Solomon means the one who brings peace. Shalom, shalomo. Shalom means peace. Shalomo, we get Solomon from that. He's the peace-bringing king. So this is the greater Solomon. He's, Jesus has already called himself the greater Solomon by this point, who's going to bring not just peace to Jerusalem and Israel, but he's going to rule the nations. And that's what he's telling everybody in the way that he comes into the city. So now we go back to Matthew 21, and we keep reading So the disciples do what they're supposed to do. Back with me in um, Matthew 21, verse 6. They do what they're told. And what happens is Jesus comes into Jerusalem and immediately starts to denounce all the people of Israel and particularly their leaders who are responsible for the temple and the old covenant structures and so on that are found there. And you know this, Matthew 21 and especially Matthew 23 Um, are seething denunciations of the leadership of Old Covenant Israel. Now, we know why this is, actually, if we zoom out and look at the whole Bible for a second. You know why this is, actually. It's because this people have become unfaithful, and Jesus has come to reconstitute Israel, so to speak, around himself. There's a way of being a faithful Israelite now, but it's not to do with the temple, which has become corrupt. It's not to do with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who've become 
hypocrites. It's to do with being one with Jesus, the true Israelite, the faithful Israelite. But just look what he says in Matthew 21. Um, first, in verse 12, he goes into the temple. He's like, well, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And he tips over all the tables. And you remember he, he, um, he does this because, quoting Isaiah, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Um, it's Jeremiah 7, I think. Um, uh, and the point is that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations of the world. And the, the, the leaders of the people of Israel have taken it over to make money by stopping the poor and the Gentiles from being able to afford the requisite offerings for worship. And he's not having that because, after all, he wants to be the king of the nations. Anything that stops the nations coming to worship the Lord has got to go. So he goes into the temple and starts smashing everything up. Then in the morning, he's coming to the city and he's not done with it yet because, verse 18, he sees this fig tree and he pronounces this curse against it because it's fruitless. And of course, you recognize the imagery of a tree from the old covenant um, uh, uh, depictions of the people of Israel as like a vine or like a vineyard. And it's a very pointed denunciation of the people of Israel for their fruitlessness. And we know what happens to fruitless things, don't we? Because John 15, anything that's fruitless, eventually it's going to get chopped off and thrown into the fire. Just tacked on to the end of that, verse 21, I say to you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but that is, you'll pronounce curses, goodness gracious, upon the old covenant unfaithful people of Israel. But you'll say to this mountain, which is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built, be lifted up and thrown into the sea. Now, just feed that through your catalogue of biblical symbolism for a second. This mountain on which the temple is built is going to be thrown into the sea where the Gentile nations of the world live, so to speak. It's the, Pastor Shaw drew attention to this in one of his sermons on Jonah. The irony of a man who flees from the Ninevites and ends up being swallowed by a fish. And fish in biblical symbolism, represent, so to speak, the nations of the world that live in the seas that rage around Israel. So you could, you could get this temple and throw it into the place where all the, all the Gentiles live. Because that would be really handy, because then they could worship God. He carries on. Uh, verse 23, uh, they don't like the idea of Jesus teaching, and so he confronts them. Um, verse 28 and following, he tells a parable of two sons. And you've got uh, the, uh, the first son who says, yeah, sure, I'll go. I'll do what you ask, but doesn't. And then the second son who doesn't say that, but then actually goes and does what he's supposed to do anyway. And the point is, well, which, which is a faithful son? And it's the one who actually does what he said rather than the one who said all the right words all along. And it's not hard to see in that. So living God has got two sons. He's got his first son, his firstborn son, Exodus 4, and Hosea um, 9 or 6, I forget. Um, Israel is my son, but they've been unfaithful. But there may one day be a faithful son. Um, Verse 33, Jesus tells another parable where the master of a house plants a vineyard Oh, come on. Isaiah chapter 5. The master of the house, the living God, plants Israel and he sends his servants, the prophets, to, to tend the, uh, the vineyard. And, of course, the, 
uh, when the tenants, um, uh, sorry, he sends his servants to, um, to get the fruit from the vineyard, and, but the tenants who are supposed to be looking after it, they see all the servants and they beat them up or they don't give them anything and they're really abusive to them. And finally, this is just this moment when you, really, you realise that this language is so saturated with um, a depiction of Christ and what he's come to do. Verse 37, finally he sent his sons to them saying, oh, they will respect my son. But when the tenants, those responsible for the vineyard, which is the house of Israel, saw the son, they said, well, look, this is the heir. If we, can, if we kill him, then we'll get the inheritance. If we can get rid of this Jesus character, then we get to keep our ownership of all this privilege that we've received from the Lord. And so they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So what's the owner of the vineyard going to do when he comes? Well, it'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give fruit in their seasons. Can you see what's happening? Again and again and again and again. Jesus, having announced in the way that he arrives that he's going to rule over all the nations, then starts to draw a distinction between the present old covenant people of God and their leaders, on the one hand, who are rebellious and hate him and reject him, and some other community of people who will one day be faithful. And it carries on. Um, the end of the parable of the two sons. And actually, you've got um, a quote from Psalm 118. Um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. That, that actually picks up from a quote that comes out of the same psalm, which is what the people say when Jesus is coming in. The people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we think that's a rather nice thing to say when the king comes into Israel. Because it's in the same psalm that David prophesies that this one stone that the builders of the house of God, the old covenant people of Israel who built the house of God, they rejected him, but he has become the most important stone of all. Can you see? everything is pointing in the same direction and then you get the parable of the wedding feast. <laughs> and the, the wedding feast is, well, the parable is, picks up all of the same, much of the same imagery. God, the father, the master, sends his servants to, in, to call people who had previously been invited. That's the important thing. You notice um, uh, uh, in verse 2, I'll, I'll read just slightly more precisely um, uh, a translation of the Greek text which will highlight this. He sent his servants to call those who had been invited. It's it's a a perfect passive. So it means it's it's an action that had been done to them in the past. They'd previously been invited and now it's time to come. Now the Messiah's here. The wedding feast is is ready. You've got to come and celebrate but they don't want to come. (laughs) The the groom has arrived in his city for the wedding feast and the people who'd been invited 2,000 years ago in the days of Abraham don't, don't want to join the celebrations. And so the Lord says, well, okay, well, we'll go find somebody else then. Uh, he, he invites um, a whole bunch of other people um, lining the roads to the city. Um, very strikingly, and this is a, um, a hint of where we're going, 
verse 7. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Mark 13, maybe we'll come to that later. It's, it's just another of those little prophecies of what's going to happen to this great city of Israel. Um, and then he brings all these people in and he finds one, only one, who's not got a wedding garment. You know, you've, you've, I don't know how you found your way in here, but if, if you're not clothed for the wedding, if you're not ready for the red wedding, you get out. And it's in that context that he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Can you see, it, it's, it's about a thousand miles away from being this sort of generalized statement that during the whole of human history, very few people are going to want to follow Jesus. It's quite the contrary. It's actually, it meshes with the tragedy that is unfolding as Jesus is again and again and again rejected by his own people and pronounces judgment against them, all in a context where he's already said, yeah, I'm going to be king of the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so, tragically, it was true that um, very, very few by this time of those old covenant Israelites trusted Jesus the Messiah. I mean, it's, you know, a few thousands did. And in, in the book of Acts, you know, there are a couple of mentions of you know, a great many priests became obedient to the faith. And there were, you know, Nicodemus seems to have repented later in his life and so on and so forth. But the, the people of Israel as a community and certainly the bulk of their leaders continue to reject Jesus. And we know that also from extra biblical sources as well. You with me? So what Jesus is saying in Matthew twenty-two fourteen is in keeping with what he says throughout the Gospels, actually, that if, if you, my people, the first century old covenant people of Israel, continue to reject me, there's no other way. There's no other way to be faithful to your God than to welcome his son, because if you have the son, you have the father. If you don't have the son, you don't have the father either. You with me? Let me pause there. Any questions or comments about that? Is that making sense? Yes, Sophia. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's sitting on more than one donkey. It also looks a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's strange. I, I guess I've, I've picked up from the, um, the Zechariah 9 quote, the, the emphasis on riding on the little baby one. I don't know how you ride on two donkeys. Maybe a specialist could help me out there. Yeah, I, don't know. Yeah, I mean, it would it, be pretty poor little thing. I mean, it's like... <laughs> I don't know what donkeys do when you overload them, but um, yeah. But but either way, I mean, it's it's yeah, maybe maybe. But either way, it's the it's the antithesis of the thing about which actually Israel's kings were warned about. Don't go down to Egypt and get loads of horses and accrue for yourself this massive majestic cavalry. Yeah, uh, Aaron, you had a question from online. Yeah. Yeah, 
and he was speechless. That, that may be right. That there's a... Um, Jonathan Edwards highlights this, actually. Um, so so this, this outer darkness, probably in the first instance, is, a, is at least connected with the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem because burned their city in verse um, uh, 7. But, of course, history is typological. Different... Um, acts of judgment and acts of blessing and different episodes inform each other and echo and mirror each other. And so we, we're, we're not wrong to see here a, a, a picture or an anticipation of the final judgment. And one of the things that Edwards points out is that there will be among those who, who are in hell a sense of complete bewilderment. Why did I end up here? Because clarity of understanding is itself a gift of God. And it is a frightful thought. Uh, so maybe that's partly what's going on. Yeah. Uh, yes, ma'am. In the parable of the fig tree, when Jesus said, let no fruit grow on the head forward forever. Yeah. Does that have anything to do with us? If we have gifts that we do not use, mm. can they be... Right, could they be taken away? Yeah. Now, it's a fascinating question because I want to say, in the first instance, what's it about? Well, it's about Israel, the old covenant tree that has been fruitless, and if it doesn't shape up, the clock's ticking, right? But life is typological. History is typological. So we're, we're right to recognize an implication of that in other areas of life. So what's true of Old Covenant Israel about their unfaithfulness and the consequences of it could have echoes in our own lives. So yes, perhaps it's the case that let's suppose there was somebody who was tremendously blessed um, with a wonderful church and lots of gifts that they could have used to serve other people but just couldn't be bothered and never did. Maybe the Lord would act in some way towards them as an individual that's parallel to how he acted here. Yeah, we're, we're not wrong to see those parallels. And we'll come to some more structures like that, actually, perhaps a bit later on. If we have time. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, on, on verse 10, it says that the servants went to the highways and gathered together as many as they were found, both bad and good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later on, there was the one that was cast out. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that that is when they read verse 14, they can't help but think about verse 10, when both the good and the bad were gathered, were called, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you are chosen. Yes. Uh, I'm curious, what, what, is, what is the significance of verse 10 saying both bad and good? Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I mean, the two options that strike me immediately are, it, it could be a parable of the wheat and the tares thing where there are some that are bad and some that are good and the the bad ones will be weeded out eventually or it could be well both bad and good are brought in but how many are actually thrown out one so what happens to the bad maybe they're maybe they're transformed by being in the presence of the king i mean who did jesus hang out with at all his banquets 
I mean, it's like goes, he goes and has dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And we'll see in a second. Let's just flip over, actually, while we're on that subject, to Luke 13. We'll look at the second of these texts. Um, and I know there'll be more questions, but um, just to zoom out for half a second, see what we're doing here. We're, we're wanting to pay close attention to the details of the Bible. Look closely at... We're not doing fridge magnet theology. It's not you grab two verses and slap them on a fridge magnet and it's oh, it's... That's how we understand the Bible. No, slowly, carefully, painstakingly. So Luke 13. um, Verses 23 and 24. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Well, there we are. I mean, doesn't that settle it? The answer is, yes, it does. Absolutely settle it. When you slow down, go back four chapters and actually start reading. Go back with me all the way to chapter 9, verse 51. It's one of the most significant structural markers in Luke's gospel. Uh, most of the, well, from this, this part onwards in Luke's Gospel, 951 onwards, is a long journey narrative. And Jesus starts up in the north in Galilee, where he's been ministering up to this point, and begins this long journey all the way down to Jerusalem. And the, the journey is described, um, chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, which is a reference almost certainly to his ascension, which Luke narrates, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so everything now is about this journey to Jerusalem. What's going to happen on the way? And as he's going on this long journey to Jerusalem, he has these frequent interactions with the crowds who are surrounding him. And it's just fascinating what happens. Just look with me um, in chapter 10, verse 13. I mean, he's just walking around. Um, uh, He's just sent out the 72 who are his disciples. So the disciples are now, they've gone, right? Um, they're off kind of preaching. And who's left? Well, it's all these crowds of people around him. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He starts to denounce the cities. Um, it, it would have been better if, if, if the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they'd have repented, but you didn't. It's like, oh, way to attract a crowd, Jesus. It's like, what are you doing? And he's, he's pronouncing the first of a long series of judgments against the people whom he's encountering. Um, The parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, uh, Verse 25. A lawyer stood up to test him. And Jesus responds, like, what uh, what uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of, don't ask Jesus questions. It's really bad. Don't ask. At least if you can ask Jesus questions, make them honest questions. Don't ask questions to test him, because what will happen is he'll ask you a question back. And that's a really bad sign when Jesus starts asking you questions. Yeah. Well, what's written in the law? Hmm? And he's like, um, well, I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to know the answer to that. Um, and he gives him an answer. And Jesus says, fine, go and do that. And, and the man feels a bit embarrassed because he's like the teacher of the law. has just asked a really dumb question. And, of course, Jesus' answer is... The answer that Jesus affirms is, love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. And so the only thing that the lawyer can think to say is, well, um, okay, I've got to make this more complicated. Who is my neighbour? So 
Stop asking questions. You're digging a hole for yourself. Verse 29, desiring to justify himself. He said, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus says, okay, you want to play hardball? Let's play hardball. And he tells him this parable. The whole point of which is to humiliate not just the person he's speaking to, but the priests, verse 31, and the Levites, verse 32, who've not welcomed the wounded sheep. Whereas the Samaritan, like the outsider, is the hero of the story. And verse 37, Jesus goes back and 36 and 37, he's asking this guy questions. And so, so who was a neighbor then? You want your clever questions about being neighbors. And it was, he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And he says, well, go and do likewise. Like, way to bring a, a significant public intellectual down about six pegs on the social standing ladder. Get your dumb questions out here and go and be kind to people, especially people who aren't like you. Well, right? Carries on. You've got the thing of Mary and Martha first. Um, the, the Lord's Prayer, chapter 11. <laughs> um, Jesus, I mean, we just, when you, when you notice this, at the end of, end of verse 13, he, he, t- he tells this um, uh, uh, little mini parable from verse 11 to 13 after he's given them the instructions about prayer. You know, which of you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent, etc., etc.? Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? You who are evil, he's not being polite. He's being really rude and denouncing the crowds as they, um, they come past. Verse 15, they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebub. The relationship isn't going so well. Um, uh, verse 27, just skip down a little bit. Um, there's a lady in the crowd who says, blessed is the womb who bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. I guess that's some kind of compliment by complimenting his mother, way of complimenting him. And he's like, yeah, well, blessed are people who do what they're told by the living God. And don't just listen. (laughs) It's absolutely brutal, repeated denunciation of the people he's walking past on the way to Jerusalem. Um, Verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. Verse 33, you've got the parable of the light being the lamp of the body, um, which again contains this warning be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And then he's invited to this dinner um, in verse 37. So all that's been like walking along the road, talking to people. And everywhere he turns, he's laying into the people he's walking past who are part of this community of the Israelites on the way down to Jerusalem. He's invited to a meal at the... uh, Pharisee's house and you get this astonishing series of rebukes. Verse 39, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Please pass the potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) And and again, it goes on and on and on. Um, Interestingly, in chapter 12, he distinguishes the crowd from his disciples. Chapter 12, verse 1, many thousands of people had gathered, so they're trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first... Beware of them. And you see again, you're seeing this distinction between the Pharisees 
on the one hand, and the leaders, and his disciples, those who are faithful to him. Um, uh, you've got the parable of the rich fool, which isn't very complimentary. He says to his disciples in verse 22, don't be anxious about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Your heavenly Father's going to look after you. He doesn't say that to the Pharisees. You see again, you've got this sharp distinction in the people he's talking to. Parable of the fig tree, chapter 13. Um, the healing of the synagogue of, of the disabled woman in uh, chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, which is opposed by the synagogue ruler. Is that the opposition is hardening. And so what you see is this widespread opposition to Jesus among the people in the towns he's going through. He's walking down their streets. He's eating in their houses. And most of them, he's just beating them up and humiliating them in public because they're part of this corrupt and hypocritical and ungodly community or they're the leaders of it. And there's one or two people who look like they might be faithful. And then it's his disciples who are with him from time to time when they're not out preaching the gospel. And in that context, it's in that context, chapter 13, verse 22, when he says, um, uh, sorry, verse, verse 23. Uh, if we turn over the page, sorry, I'm turning over the page in my Bible. As he's going through, verse 22, he's going through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Somebody says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So you can see what he's saying. He's like, well, yeah, <laughs> have a look around you. Um, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And then as if to confirm what we've seen, uh, he continues in a way that highlights precisely the community that he's actually speaking about. Um, Verse 25, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you began to stand outside and knock at the door saying, let us in, let us in, he'll answer you, I don't know where you are, where you've come from. And then verse 26, you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Whose streets? Well, their streets. He taught, he's just been teaching in the streets of the Israelite communities that he's walking through. He's been to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And now when he's talking about those many who will try to enter and won't be able to, he says, when you're thrown out, you're going to say, we, I taught in your streets and we had dinner together and I still don't know who you are. Because what you're seeing is the specific local context into which Jesus is speaking. And in that context, what is the answer to the question, Lord, is it, are only a few going to be saved? The answer is, yeah, only a few. You're, you're going to have to strive to enter through the narrow door because lots of people are going to try and they're not going to be able to. Only a few are going to be saved from around here. And what it highlights is I, I think this is probably one of the most widespread and damaging mistakes that we make when we read the Bible. We imagine that the Bible is, I'll I'll put it as provocatively as I can so you'll remember it. We imagine wrongly that the Bible is the word of God to us. And we get one verse 
and we copy it onto a fridge magnet and we slap it on the fridge. And sometimes we escape unscathed because sometimes the context that we imagine for that verse doesn't butcher its actual meaning. But then we get to other texts of scripture like, Lord, are those who are going to be saved, will they be few? And if you get that and do your, our fridge magnet hermeneutics and just read it in isolation, then we end up with completely the wrong impression. And the, way, the reason we do it is because we all think the Bible is the word of God to us. And it is the word of God to us. By virtue of the fact that it was first the word of God to somebody else. Can you see what I'm saying? Of course the Bible is the word of God to us. But it wasn't written on gold plates and dropped from heaven and sort of delivered like the Book of Mormon. It's, it's, it doesn't come in... Did you ever have those little kind of daily desk calendars where you have a little... You had them? I'm guilty of this as well. Okay, I've had those. I've got a fridge magnet that has Joan... Judges 331 on it in Serbian. Not many people can say that. I have, I have one fridge magnet Bible verse. It's very dangerous. But the, I think the danger is we do all of our Bible reading with a kind of fridge magnet hermeneutics. Because it's much more exhausting and mentally draining to, to read the whole four chapters that lead up to the verse you're looking at and to think as carefully as you can about who, who's he saying this to? And what, what are the implications of it? With, you with me? When you see that, sometimes what you thought it said turns out to be completely wrong. Completely wrong. Totally backwards. We've got to stop fridge magnet Bible reading. And if I see a fridge magnet with a Bible verse on it in your house, I want to know what's the context that makes sense of it. And I want you to explain what... You with me? Fridge magnets are not evil but reading the Bible as little nuggets in isolation, as though it's like the word of God to me in isolation is a mistake. It is the word of God to us. It is. Because it is first the word of God to somebody else, and so we have a much harder time than we sometimes realize to get to grips with what it actually means. You with me? Right. Now, let me pause for a second to see if there's any questions about that. There may be a couple. We, we should try and move on and do page two. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, maybe. But should we should we whiz through this? Okay, come on, why not? Let's do this. I thought of only doing one of these two objections to post-millennial eschatology today, but nah, we can do them both. Remember, what? Just take a step back. What we're doing is we're we're wanting to hear what our brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us about eschatology want to say about how we've understood the scriptures. They want to say, well, what about these verses? What about this? What about these texts? And we're not answering those texts. We're going to look at them really carefully, see what they actually say. One cluster of texts is the one we've already looked at a couple of examples of, the few will be saved texts, which actually don't say any such thing about the whole of history. What about the other category of texts? Is it true that Jesus is coming soon? Remember, if that's true, post eschatology must be wrong. If Jesus is coming tomorrow, the world won't be discipled in time. And there are many, many, many texts which I have here described, first bullet point, as imminent event 
texts. And they say something like, you won't have done X before the Son of Man comes, or this generation won't pass away, or from now on something's going to happen, or something's going to happen soon, or the hour has come, or it's near, or it's at hand, or speaks of the present distress, or says the time has grown short, or this present world is passing away, or the end of the ages is upon us, or just a little while, and Jesus isn't going to delay, and we're in the last days, and the judge is standing at the door, and he's ready to be revealed, and it's now the last hour. There's a gazillion New Testament texts that say things like that, and I've got a selection of them here for you. I I was trying to figure out how to squeeze them onto the handout, because I didn't want to do too much stapling. I was running out of time. And I had a, um, a meeting at 5.15. I thought, I'm not going to have time to do all the stapling. So rather than lay them all out on individual lines and have them run to four pages, I thought, I'll just cram them in 10-point font and just have vertical line separators between them. But just glance at those texts for a second. Matthew. A bunch of them from Matthew. And therefore, they're from all the other Gospels. I've only put the Matthew ones in there, not the parallels. Um, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians... Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, James, 1 Peter, Hebrews, 1 John, Revelation, 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 Revelation. All saying some variation of um, Jesus is coming back soon. And so I hear my friend telling me, see, um, if Jesus is coming back soon, your post-millennial eschatology must be wrong. Now, think for 30 seconds. Let's apply the lesson that I just mentioned to you. We're not doing fridge magnet exegesis now. Jesus actually did say, um, all these things will come upon this generation. He actually did say, um, these things must soon take place. And that seems to suggest that those things must soon take place and they're going to come on this generation. So, my goodness, the end is going to come on our generation and Jesus is going to come back soon. We must be ready for Jesus to return at any time. This generation won't taste death until all these things have been fulfilled. Now, what's the mistake I've just made? Somebody describe the mistake I've just made. Yes, sir. Yeah, Mason. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I did the fridge magnet mistake. Yeah? What I did was, I took a saying that Jesus or Paul the Apostle or whoever wrote Hebrews or John or the angel who spoke Revelation to John, I took something that they said nearly 2,000 years ago and treated it as though it's being said to me now, which is about the dumbest thing you could possibly do with any book ever, any time in the whole of the world, right? It was true that, verse Matthew 10, 23, um, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It was true that, Revelation 1, 1, this revelation of Jesus Christ was given by God to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And what I want to just keep emphasizing is that soon means soon. Soon doesn't mean 2,000 years and counting. If, if these texts refer to the final coming of Jesus in glory, then the Bible is wrong. 
Because it's 2,000 years and counting since these texts were written. So one of two things is the case. Either the Bible is incorrect or these texts must refer to something else. Are you with me? Now the question is, what could they conceivably refer to? And this is the moment where you realise, oh, this has been so worthwhile because this is going to completely change the way I read the entire New Testament. What massively significant event was going to happen soon at the point when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians or the writer of Hebrews was writing to the Hebrews or um, John was writing the book of Revelation or Jesus was ministering? What, what big event was going to happen? It was the fall of Jerusalem. That event was going to happen soon. And that is the event that's being referred to in all of the coming soon, Lord is at hand, this generation, etc. texts. And the way you know that is when you start looking again at some examples of specific predictions, specific um, sections of, let's say, I was going to look at uh, Mark 13. We're we're not going to do that because we're going to run out of time terribly if we do that. What you do is you just say, okay, slow down. Start with Mark 13. Go on, let's have a look at it briefly. Because it's actually not that difficult. Weirdly, it's kind of, once you start start looking and thinking and, and being as careful as you can, um, So you get to Mark 13, and you can see why um, the um, friends of mine that I mentioned earlier want to say that we're, we're supposed to expect the, the last things very soon because, for example, verse 24 um, In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming, the coming, the second coming, final coming of Jesus, in clouds with great power and glory. Down a couple of verses, verse 20, verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Well, that sounds like this generation. Yes, that generation that he was speaking to. Not this generation that we're in, that generation. Can you see the shift that we need to take? And then you go back to verse 1, and you think, let's look really closely and see how hard we have to look to figure this out. As he came out of the temple, this is in the same part of his ministry that we looked at in Matthew 21. Of course, he's in Jerusalem in the final days of his life on earth before his death and resurrection. One of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this is Jesus saying, this beautiful temple, the site of which at this point occupied 20-something acres. It was massive, the rebuilt temple in the days of Herod, which Jesus was in. And then verse 3, they sat opposite the temple at the Mount of Olives, and Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that they're about to be accomplished? So what precisely is the question? The question was well, two questions. Is when will this event that you just told us about, this, these beautiful buildings being torn down, when will that be? 
And second, what will be the sign that it's about to happen? Because it'd be kind of handy to know so we can get out of here. Right? And Jesus proceeds to answer the question. And he does so in the language of the symbolism that's drawn from Old Testament prophecy and so-called apocalyptic literature, which is what throws people, because they read the text that I, I read to you, verse 24 and 25, and they don't think, well, they think, oh, this looks like the end of the space-time universe and, and Jesus coming visibly back to Earth. They don't think, oh, that looks like Isaiah 13 and 31 and a, a depiction of the downfall of a great king, which is what it is, actually. It's drawn from Isaiah the prophet. All of, and all this kind of stuff goes on all the way down to verse 31. This generation will not pass away until all these things pass away, verse 30. And then verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth, the, uh, according to the book of Hebrews, the present heavens and earth. No, not Hebrews, it's um, First Thessalonians, is it? I forget, Pastor Neil will know. The, first heavens, the present heavens and earth are being kept for fire. Oh, I've remembered the text. Hebrews 12? I forget. Anyway, it's, um, it's a, a way of describing the um, architectural replica of the heavens and the earth, which are in the temple. The temple is a replica of the heavens and the earth. We'll have to look at that another day. But, verse 32, this is where you get the change of subject. This is where Jesus starts talking about something else. He's just been talking about an event which is in the near-term future, the timing of which he can tell you because he's just been telling you. But concerning that day or that hour, verse 32, no one knows. Not the Son, not the angels in heaven, but only the Father. The phrase that is here translated, but concerning, is the same phrase in Greek that is used in 1 Corinthians when Paul wants to change the subject, peride. He says, now concerning food sacrificed to idols, now concerning the resurrection, now concerning spiritual gifts, no, he's changing subject. I've been talking about the destruction of the temple. Peride, that day? Oh, nobody knows about that day. This in Mark 13 is when he starts talking about his final coming in glory, the date of which he, according to his human nature, doesn't actually know. The mistake, of course, is to kind of roll these together and imagine the whole thing is about this generation, therefore to be perpetually expecting the end of this era of history and to think, therefore, oh, Jesus couldn't disciple the nations because he won't have time. See how that works? Okay. So what have we done? Okay, we've not got quite to the end, but you've done very well. If you've, if you've clung on to the roller coaster and not had too many of your belongings flying out of the cars on the sharp turns, you've done really well this evening because we've covered a lot of ground. Um, let me just um, bring us back to where we were. In principle, what we're doing here is carrying on an important conversation with people who disagree with us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you see things differently. And we're wanting to say, okay, they've drawn our attention to some biblical texts. We don't ignore those texts. We don't answer those texts. We read them, trying to hear what God is saying in them. And when you read them, actually, it turns out, firstly, that I don't think it does challenge the optimistic post-millennial eschatology that we've been building in the last few weeks. But secondly, in the process it will change quite radically how you look at large swathes of the New Testament now because every time you see something that you had previously assumed to be a reference to the final coming of Jesus, you will pause and think, is it? And sometimes it will be. 
Yes, sometimes it will be. 13.32 and following. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians 4. Perhaps 2 Peter 3. 2 Thessalonians 1. But not always. And you'll start to realize, just to flip over the page again, that this moment in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and what happened 40 years later, because there's always a 40-year overlap between significant ages, 40 years or 40 days between significant ages, 40 years in the wilderness, um, 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus, 40 days of rain in the days of Noah, and so on. Um, This moment in history is actually far more decisive than we realise. Think of it like this. When does the new creation take place? Before tonight, you might have wanted to say, well, it's going to be over here, the new creation. Yes? Right at the end, the renewed heavens and earth. What does Paul say? If anyone's in Christ, what is he? He Yeah. Literally, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. We already participate in new createdness because that's what Jesus has inaugurated. And one of the effects of learning to read the Bible in this way is that it amplifies even more the significance of all that Jesus has already accomplished. We're already seated with him in the heavenly places by faith. We're already raised with him. Uh, We've already been uh, adopted as his children. We already experience the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're already reborn as part of the new creation. Anyway, that's going to take us way off track and with, oh, 18 minutes past eight, our usual finish time, three minutes after the scheduled finish time, we should probably stop. All right, well done, everybody. Those of you who are at home, hope that wasn't too much of a whirlwind tour and you managed to cling on white knuckles for the whole ride. Um, Thank you, Aaron, once again for your labours on the tech stuff. Appreciate it. Shall I lead us in prayer and then we'll go? Merciful Father, we are thankful to you for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we're reborn and renewed. We pray that you would teach us to uh, open our eyes to details of the scriptures that we may not have seen, that may not have been obvious to us before. Help us not to uh, read superficially and understand superficially, but to see what it is that you're saying, both about the horrors of the final judgment that awaited your old covenant people when they rejected Christ and the glories of the new world into which we've been now welcomed in him and we pray in his name amen all right Um, those of you who are able to help with moving chairs around a bit I think I'm probably right Pastor Neil if we moved the tables out and had chairs arranged as for worship in the normal way, would that be right? Yeah. If, if you're able to follow the usual drill, as though somebody were here who knew how to set out the chairs, that would be awesome. Thank you.